O Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. The beautiful sentiment of Psalm 26.8 reminds us of the privilege, the precious one at that, that allows us to assemble today and gather at the house of God and the nobility and the opportunity that is given to you and me to do the same. As I stand before us today, certainly thankful for the presence of each and every one, that things are well with us as they are, for those who have been sick and are able to be back with us. But let's continue to remember those also who are unable to be here for that reason, their sickness. And may we give some thought, of course, to the nearness of that Bible bowl, and we'll have some more to say about that this evening, of course, as we wrap up our series of lessons on the Exodus. One last puzzle that we'll be dealing with, and we'll, Denise and I will distribute that as we leave this morning. It'll be a review puzzle over Exodus chapters 1 to 24, and so we'll test our memory to see what we might recall through these first 24 chapters of the, of the book of Exodus. Choices of shame and sin. You might note on the wall to my left, that'll be the title that I've devoted and given to the lesson this morning, and it is to that that I would direct your attention a moment ago, as was read to us from the second chapter of First Peter, it'll be a short bit in our lesson, and we will cast the spotlight on some of the features of that passage and use it to extract some lessons that will relate to the choices that you and I make in life. Some introductory words might well be appropriate and be in order. And might I ask you to consider just a few of these things with me? It is amazing to consider the choices that are made by each and every one of us every day. Those who have taken the opportunity to count such things, or at least to estimate them, tell us that we at least make hundreds and in some instances thousands of decisions and choices over the course of a day. Some of them are rather simple and mundane in their character, but others are much deeper and profound in their nature. And as we give thought this morning to some of those choices, we'll find that there's a great deal of responsibility that relates to them. What you and I choose to say, what we choose to do, where we choose to go in a day, and perhaps more to the point for this lesson, how we choose to use the blessings that have been afforded to us. You see, there are some great duties that associate to those choices because there are consequences. I would ask today that we give some thought to those consequences and also to the character of those lessons. It is a weighty issue to consider some of those results and some of the consequences that go with them. And you, as you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, sometimes we so often see in the world that there are choices that lead directly down a very troublesome pathway of shame and also of sin. And you and I, even as those that are called of God and those who are more interested and have in fact responded in obedient faith, you and I too must make those choices. And if we aren't careful, we too can travel down the same roadway of sin and shame. And so this morning, how do you and I employ those blessings that have been given to us physically? Are we using them for shameful means and ways? And are we using them for sinful things? Or are we in fact using them as God would have us to use them? A few premises to begin the more critical element of our lesson this morning. And based on those premises, we will then draw some lessons that will be so useful to you and me today. Isn't it amazing as you think about a child who grows up? There is at first, of course, the realization that child cannot make his or her decisions. Even the clothes that are worn, dad and mom select them and put them on the child. But we all know if 
we have had children, it reaches a time when they want to make that choice. They want to pick out their clothes so that they can, in fact, organize them according to their preferences and wear what they like. But you'll notice that with that ability comes some responsibility. If dad and mom do not approve of that, they may have to change them. And then furthermore, it sets the character of how they are viewed by others. Does that young man or woman wear what would become and in fact be recognized as appropriate from a godly perspective to wear? Or is it shameful? Does it reveal too much? Does it in fact set forth that which is not the kind of reputation that one would wish to share? Do you notice then with me that with the ability to choose comes some responsibility? That the responsibility would be done wisely and that it would be done appropriately. The next section on that slide asks us to take that a step further. With that ability to choose comes the direct responsibility for the choice that we've made. Every one of us will stand before the great God of heaven on some occasion, some grand day, and give an accounting for every deed done in the body, for the decisions that you and I have made. How did we use that which God gave us? Did we use it well? Or did we, in fact, use it for shame and sin? We will all give that answer, and so I would ask that we today begin to ponder that thought And perhaps then if choices need to be changed in our life, different directions need to be taken, different paths need to be trodden, that we'll begin to make those changes at once and that we'll begin to make those choices that do not lead to shame and to sin. Think about just a few, and I have begun the list rather briefly. I have asked us to think about something as simple as a computer. Maybe many of us have one. Maybe even we have one at home, we have one at work. Perhaps even there are several members of the family that have one. As we give thought, how are we using such a device as that? It can obviously be used as a great tool of effectiveness. It can be used as a great tool of efficiency. But by the same token, it can be used as a tool to waste enormous amounts of time It could even be used to access things that are inappropriate. You see, the choice rests with its user. It rests with the one employing it. And the same could be said for a car. What a marvelous tool of locomotion and transportation, allowing us to move from one location to another with relative speed and to do so in such a way that efficiency and the demands of life are met. But by the same token... One could use that car and allow things to be done in it that not only are shameful but are completely inappropriate. And one could use it to go to places that one ought never to be. You see again, the way in which it's used determines the character of what's accomplished by it. Does God grant favor toward it or does He condemn it? Perhaps one final note of quickness. The Bible in resounding character reminds us of those spiritual consequences that can often accompany our usage of the physical things in life. In John twelve forty eight, our Master affirmed, these words that should ever be upon our minds as we give thought to how we shall give answer to those things. He that rejecteth me and receiveth my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And thus anything touched upon by the word of God as it dictates how one must or must not use the blessings of life, you and I will give answer for it on that grand occasion. 
In 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, Paul, in writing to Timothy, rather boldly declared, O Timothy, keep that which has been committed to thy trust, and give not heed to those false notions and that false knowledge of science so-called. Isn't it amazing, then, that Timothy was to use the abilities, the blessings that had been afforded to him, to uphold not which was the false ways of the world of man, but the things, of course, that were nobly set forth by God. Didn't Ezekiel set the matter before us in these words in Ezekiel 18.20? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son, but the righteous of the righteousness shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. If your choices or mine are then in the way of wickedness, we shall have to appreciate God has taken notice. And if forgiveness for that is not obtained, if repentance is not to be seen, we will have to then give an answer in the day of reckoning to God for that choice that we made. Might I ask then, what about some guidelines from the Word of God that can help us? as we strive to consider the noble ways to use the physical blessings that you and I have. On the pages that follow, the slides that follow, let's look at just a few of these, giving some thought not only to that verse that was read before us in 1 Peter 2, but, yea, another passage that will give us a rule book, a set of guidelines that could help us along this way. The first thing perhaps to note is that the Bible does provide us with some principles that help us. Helps us not only to understand what God would demand of us here, but helps us in such a way that we can be a great blessing to those around us. Not only our family, such as our husband or wife, and our children, but even those that may associate with us, so that they too can come to learn how to employ the blessings that they have been given. It goes without saying, in light of what we've learned already, there's a mountain of responsibility that comes with using those blessings that we have been given. You might have noted in the reading from 1 Peter 2, verses 15 and 16, that Paul, or rather Peter there, expressly noted that you and I have the lovely character of having liberty. Did you notice he said, as you employ those blessings you have, despite the fact you have liberty, never, ever use those blessings as a cloak of wickedness. A cloak of wickedness. What did the inspired writer mean on that occasion? And I use that as the rendering of the American Standard Translation. If you're reading in the King James Translation, it makes reference to a cloak of maliciousness. You might take note, the better rendering of that word was in fact wickedness. And Peter thus affirms in this context in which he's discussing the usage of one's blessings and gifts, don't ever use them as a cloak of maliciousness, as a cloak of wickedness. In other words, to try and cover up what one should be and thus really be a hypocrite in the sense of one really is not what one appears. You're cloaking what you really are and ultimately at its base you're using them in a wicked fashion. I would submit to you that's a timeless lesson for us, isn't it? Think about the host of blessings that you have and those that I have. Am I giving the pretense of being one kind of person when in reality I am using them in a way that's wicked? If so, Peter does not in fact favor any such, but condemns me in that as well as he does you. 
don't ever use our blessings as a cloak of the liberty that we have and the blessings that come with it. Let us not use them in such a way that upholds wickedness and gives any light to that course of life. But rather, you'll notice some of these blessings that next come all follow from Philippians 4, verse 8. Rather than using that liberty and the choices that we're able to make in such a way to uphold wickedness, Paul made this statement in Philippians 4, 8. He said, Think on the following set of things. And since one's thoughts will determine one's actions and will determine the course of life that one pursues, he said, think on things that are true and honest and just and lovely and pure and of a good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And isn't it true that if we cast some spotlight thinking upon that, What does it mean to describe something in those ways and how does that interact with and determine our usage of those blessings we've been given? The following statements that will take us really through the end of the lesson today is really an exposition of the matter of that verse. Let's look at the first one. The first matter that the inspired apostle listed, true. Think on things that are true. And let that be a guide to how one employs the blessings of one's life. Might I ask you to give some thought to that set of verses? Hasn't it always been true that God has lifted high the banner of truth and that He wishes not only individuals to proclaim and lift up such, but also nations to uphold the same? In Jeremiah 9 verse 3, cataloging that ancient day of old, it was the case there that through Jeremiah, God said, this is a people who are valiant, but not valiant for truth. They had the appearance of being strong, but sadly enough, they weren't strong for the truth. And for that reason, God had a great sense of punishment that He promised to come upon them if repentance was not to be seen. They were strong, but not for truth. Later, we also appreciate this text in Ephesians 4.15. The inspired apostle said to speak the truth in love. There is a truth that God has revealed. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, the Lord proclaimed in John 17.17. And hence, you and I must ever speak this word with truth. I might use that thought to then ask us this. What about the communication that you and I choose to employ? You and I make choices, and many of them daily, about the language that we will use. About, in fact, the way in which that is employed when we talk on a phone, when we communicate by text messaging or email, when we have direct communication with someone. What choices are you and I making? Are we upholding truth in what we say? Or are we sharing gossip? Are we tail-bearing? Are we spreading forth that which is nothing more than a speculative rumor? God's taking notice of our communication. Aren't we reminded in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Question. Is our communication then characteristic of the truth as God would have it? We are reminded perhaps in one final passage in 2 John 3 of that noble compliment paid 
to the elect lady as there she's referenced because she was a person pursuing the truth and the same was true of her family. May our communication thus always be embedded firmly and concretely in that which is true. But furthermore, note the next element in Paul's inspired listing. Not only did he make mention of that which was true, he said, think on that which is honest. The rendering in the Greek is really the word honorable. And hence it leads us to notice, what about the matter of one's thinking, one's actions, one's usage of his or her blessings being directed toward that which is honorable? What does it mean to specify that which is honorable? A few thoughts perhaps along that line. I thought one way in which we could so carefully consider that would be one of those tools that so many of us now have, a cell phone. If you do not, think of a telephone. For many of the same principles apply. Isn't it amazing the utility of a cell phone and how in a short few years that has come to be such a common part of society? But yet it does beg the question, how are we using it? Are we using it to, in fact, waste away so many hours a day in doing something that isn't needful? Or are we using it in a proper way to, in fact, communicate in a needful way for our jobs or otherwise, or perhaps assure the safety and security of our family? You see, there is ways that it can be used that are not only shameful, but they're sinful. Think about some of the text messaging that could be sent. A husband or wife perhaps texting someone else who is not one's husband or wife and sharing thoughts and ideas that are uncomely and sinful. Pictures can be taken with the thing these days. Pictures could be taken of things that are inappropriate, sent to others, and also to convey that which is not only shameful, but is absolutely opposed to the will of God. How are we using such a device as that cell phone? Doesn't it remind us of 2 Timothy 2.21, when it was on that occasion that Paul made reference to that very, or not a cell phone I should say, but to the matter of employing one's capabilities and doing so in a way to uphold honor. Even though Paul and Timothy lived in a day long before cell phones and long before computers and long before automobiles, nonetheless it was needful for Timothy to understand that you need to be a person of honor, employing yourself in such a fashion as it brings about the honor of one's understanding of his relationship to God. In Ecclesiastes 10 verse 1, we find this rather interesting passage. If you think about the usage of a cell phone, it seems as if this fits so very easily and well. It may sound unusual, but the text reads like this. Dead flies cause the ointment of the, the, of the apothecary to send forth a stinking odor. So is folly in him who has a reputation for being one of honor. Notice what, in essence, was said in that passage. We understand well that in those days of the long past, when a person of means could in fact prepare that ointment or that lotion, if dead flies were to get caught in it, it soon would cause it to stink, and it soon would cause it to be powerless and unusable. So too, the inspired writer says, is that person who has a desire to be a person of honor and yet allows folly to enter his life. Folly, again, is bad decision-making. 
when you and I use that cell phone or the other devices of our life, are we making wise decisions or are we making decisions that are compared to dead flies in the ointment of an apothecary? It is something to consider, isn't it? As you give some thought to those two, however, Paul had some others to share with us. Might I direct your attention to the third element that he listed? Mention was made of that which was just. Think not only on that which is true and that which is honest, but he went on to mention that which is just. The Greek word therein present involves righteousness, and it means to be right in the sight of God. As you and I choose to use those blessings of our life, are we using them in a way that brings honor, respect, and glory to the very name of God? Is it just and right in His sight? It doesn't matter if it's right in the sight of somebody else. All that matters ultimately, is it right in His sight? And with that thought in mind, look with me at some of those passages. It was the case, wasn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Notice that God's righteousness, that which is right in His sight, should be the highest priority of life. Nothing else can be allowed to come above it. Jesus said, that righteousness must be first. And with that thought in mind, one other passage. Because that righteousness touches, yea, every aspect of your life and mine. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. If you and I thus make that choice to use the blessings of our life, those physical blessings, in a way that upholds sinfulness and shame, we are not any aid to this country. And in fact, we're certainly no aid to the cause of God because His way is a way of righteousness. It always thus asks us as we think about employing those blessings of life, am I using them in a way that God approves? This lesson, of course, as you can imagine, certainly is a way that each of us are challenged, not only those that are young, but even those of us that are a bit older, to think about how we're using those blessings. Once we have arrived at a place of being older, we learned earlier today, perhaps by this point in life, God has blessed us with so much. But you'll notice that we said, with more comes more responsibility. How are you and I who are older using these blessings that we've been given? Expand it to that which is just beyond a cell phone or a computer. What about the house that we have? Are we allowing what takes place in it to bring glory and honor to God? Well, what about the income that we enjoy that perhaps can be bountiful with years of work and employment? Are we allowing those funds and monies to be used in a way that truly is right in the sight of God? There will be a series of lessons coming a bit later in this fall in which we will look at some financial lessons found in the Word of God. Some of the things may be challenging to all of us. What does God say about how I should be using my funds, my economics, my monies, my finances? He has spoken. We will look often in the book of Proverbs and see what has God said about that. Today's lesson perhaps is an introduction to it helps us see that there are responsibilities. In addition to looking at that matter of righteousness, what about purity? The next element on the list takes us to this interesting point. 
Paul again said, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on that which is pure. What does it mean to discuss purity? The word P-U-R-E. Isn't it an interesting word just by its nature? I would submit to you that these thoughts are appropriate. All throughout the Bible, purity is lifted to an exceedingly high plane. What was it the Lord said in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5.8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Friend, if you and I want to go to heaven, purity is required. We can, in fact, meander through life in an impure way and expect God to overlook it. We can, in fact, pursue a course of life filled with shame and sin, knowing all the while that impurity is described therein and expect God to overlook it. He will not do so. The pure in heart are the ones that shall see God. Not only purity in that regard, notice that high example admonished on Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. Wasn't it true there that Paul said, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in purity, in faith. You'll notice that one of the elements included in Paul's inspired listing, Timothy, you be an example to everybody in your purity. Is your life and mine recognized by others as a life of purity? One devoted to the cause which is ultimately pure, and that's the pursuit of righteousness? Or are they guilty of witnessing us doing things, saying things, involving ourselves in things that not only are ennoble, but also are shameful? The choice is, again, yours and mine. You might think with me again about the usage of some of those blessings that we have been given. I thought this would be a time to make mention again of that computer. We noted earlier how that the choice rests with the user. Do I use it in a way that in fact it can be used goodly and for a way to increase one's capability to reach others with what's good? We all know that you can access sites that are plain ugly. They are sinful to the very core, and those who put them on there likely know it. But yet they make their money that way. What about the way we use that computer? Do we use it, in fact, to chat and to enter rooms and places that we ought not be? Many things can be done in the quietness of a room with what seems to be nobody watching. May we never forget God is watching. He knows every click of the mouse that's made. He knows every stroke of the key that takes place. He knows everything that's done and every thought that enters your mind and mine when we use that device. Are we using it in a way that's pure? These thoughts, of course, have led to a wealth of industry on various blockers that folks can put on a computer that will not allow you supposedly to enter certain sites and places. The ultimate and final block, though, has to come in here. Are we dedicated to a life of purity? Are we set and affirmed and devoted to that life and it alone? Or are we going to allow Satan to lead us down a roadway of shame and sin? The choice is yours and mine. You'll notice one final passage that perhaps is important in that regard. It's verse 22 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Three little words is all that begins that verse. To Timothy, Paul said, Keep thyself pure. That not only goes for a person who would stand in a pulpit and preach, 
For it's to be expected that if one is going to teach others the ways of God and the ways of the Bible, that certainly his life should mimic the truth he claims to preach. But you'll notice those kind of messages are for all of us. If you and I are going to wear the name Christian, we have to be pure. How pure did Christ keep his physical body? We should desire to keep his spiritual body as pure, if not more so, than he kept his physical body. Any other thing is shameful and disgraceful to the cause of the Master. Purity is required. And those that enter the golden gates of heaven some sweet day, according to Revelation 7, 21, and 22, are those whose life is characterized by purity and those who are able to lift up clean and holy hands to Him. Psalm 24, verses 2 through 4. Purity. The choice is yours and mine. But what about the next element? There's also the matter of that which is pleasing unto God. That is a way of rendering that Greek word that appears lovely. Think of what's lovely. That is, that which is acceptable, pleasing to the very eyes of our Heavenly Father. Clearly, that involves some teaching. And when we're young, we should be thankful for parents who have instilled within us a thought of what's pleasing to God and not let us just do everything we wanted, but who would not allow us to do certain things because that's not right, son. God doesn't, in fact, accept that of you, and you should know better. We should be thankful for a mother and a father and our grandparents who had enough love for us and enough consideration for the truth of God who, in fact, guarded our ways with limits and boundaries and restrictions so that we could walk that straight way that leads to everlasting life and what is discussed in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. With regard to what's pleasing unto God, consider some of the thoughts about the usage of a car. Perhaps all of us look forward to that time, or maybe you can remember it, when you reached the age and dad and mom allowed you to purchase a car or helped you to purchase one. That was a special day, wasn't it? I finally have freedom and liberty. I don't always have to ride with dad and mom. I can drive myself to school. I can drive myself to a friend's house. But just as surely as that's true, you can also choose to drive yourself a place you ought never be you'll notice and sometimes you allow a friend to ride with you and he wants to go somewhere that you know dad and mom wouldn't approve. In any situation like that, what is pleasing to God? What would in fact be that which meets God's high standards? And may we ever fall in line with that. If it means disappointing a friend, so be it. If he or she is a true friend, they'll understand and they'll appreciate the nobility of your life. And in time, they may even come to ask questions about why you made the decision you made. But let it be noted that above all things, as we make those decisions, one that pleases God would never be a decision of shamefulness, nor would it ever be a decision of sinfulness. It would be a decision that's filled with all the righteousness and purity we've mentioned earlier. A verse or two along that line would perhaps be this one. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, closing chapter of that book, Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, admonished and encouraged them to always conduct themselves in a way that's agreeable and pleasing unto God. That touches the decisions we make, every one of them. When we carry on conversations and the way that we conduct ourselves as an example before others, what does it say? Is that a life that lifts high the standard of Christ? 
Paul could put it in these words in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me, in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said Christ was exemplified in his life. Is he exemplified in yours and mine? Second Timothy or Second Corinthians 4.11 says something very similar. It is with that thought in mind, the very last element in Paul's list is this one. What about that which is commendable before God? The last element in his list, that which was commendable before God. May I ask each of us a question, including myself? In that graphic description of Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23, on that great day of judgment, the following statement was made of some. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. With regard to the decisions that you and I make, will God be able to say well done? Or will he have something different than that to say? I would submit that each of us, as we make certainly these less than mundane decisions of life, need to ask, will he say, can he say, well done? If he can't, we'd better think twice before we do what we're contemplating. We'd better, in fact, give it some serious reflection because a different course of action apparently is in order. A passage or two along that line would be the very one I've previously listed. Perhaps the television could be listed now. That's another one of those blessings that we've been given and what wholesome entertainment is available, but also what shameful, despicable, ungodly programming is there if one chooses to watch it. What choice do you and I make? It is left to us. May we choose that which is true and honest and pure and just and lovely and of good report. And may we leave aside these choices of sorrow, shamefulness, and sin. And with that, a closing thought or two. In summary, we've learned some of the following things. That with the blessings of our life come responsibility. We are now those who have the liberty to choose how to use them. God blesses us with so much, but He doesn't force us to use it in any certain way. He lets us make that decision. How are you making that decision with regard to the blessings of your life? Are you choosing the course of wisdom, the course of trueness and honesty and purity and justness, and that which God approves and commends? Or are you choosing, perhaps trying to conceal it or cover it, but nonetheless choosing, what is sinful, what is shameful. If you're making those latter set of choices, friend, you need to make some real changes. You need a course of change in your thinking because your current course is not leading you to where God would need you to be, want you to be, and where salvation is found. If you aren't a Christian today, it begins right there. You need to have all the past sins of your life washed away in baptism, and that's the only way it happens. We learn passages that, in fact, admonish us in this way. The one who is saved is the one who hears the Word of God. Romans 10, verse 14. The one who believes Jesus to be the Son of God and believes the truth of God's revelation, John eight twenty four. The one who repents of his or her sins, recognizing a change of mind that results in a change of action is in order. I can't go on living the same old sinful lifestyle. Repentance involves a change, and it's commanded in Luke 13.3. Then there's the matter of a verbal confession. 
that we can, in fact, confess to others that we believe with all of our heart Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, commanded of us in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And then, finally, gloriously, joyously, beautifully, to be buried in baptism, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. That's done not as a show that we're already saved, because salvation doesn't occur until sins are forgiven. And Acts 22.16 says they aren't forgiven until we're baptized. Then and only then does one then enjoy that forgiveness, and one can rise to walk a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. If there would be one or more in the audience that has not yet made that decision, despite the fact you know Jesus died for you, you know that you're in sin and that you're currently destined for a devil's hell. Make that decision today. Why not today, the 5th of September, 2010? If you've begun that walk with Christ, but you have allowed unfaithfulness to reign supreme, you've begun to use the blessings of life in a way that's filled with sin and shame, you need to make a change today. Today's the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. And today, God would lovingly welcome you back to the side of His Son. If we could pray upon your behalf, let us do that. Let us offer that prayer, beseeching God to forgive you, as taught to us in Acts 8, verse 20. And if we could help do either of those things today for you, why not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.